Thank you. Thank you. It is so wonderful to be here this morning, to have this time to connect with Bethesda, to this congregation that has an incredible reputation by so many of us in Assemblies of God World Missions, other organizations that you support for the incredible um, continuity, the consistency that you have demonstrated over the years and continue to do so. And when I was hearing Pastor Josh share those stats this morning, it's just inspiring to see the way that you continue to faithfully be able to not only share the love of Jesus both in your own community but around the world. And uh, thank you for allowing God to continue to use you. Can you say amen, church? Pastor Dan and Becky, it is so good to be with you. And thank you for the invitation to be here. We're quite honored. And I know that your pastor is someone who is well thought of by many of friends that uh, we have in common and through the executive committee of AGWM and uh, the contribution he has made uh, as an individual, just the gifts that he has brought to bear uh, to help us advance the message of missions uh, around this nation. And because of that, um, not only have so many individuals been called into missions that are serving worldwide, but it has led to just an amazing response in the last two decades to missions giving uh, that uh, has culminated in um, this past year being the largest giving year that the Assemblies of God World Missions has ever experienced. And uh, it just continues to advance. Isn't that wonderful? It's just absolutely amazing. And I want to say thank you, Dan. Thank you to both of you. Um, you have contributed in ways that many people are not even aware of and uh, I want you to know that we're very grateful to you and it was so good just to be able to be part of what's happening in terms of the worship this morning to sense just the presence of Jesus in this place uh, thank you for the amazing moment of worship and uh, it, it truly is uh, an honor for Cheryl and me to be with you today I want to speak to you about something that is close to my heart and I think is absolutely essential for every one of us in here who are a follower of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are watching by line or who are here this morning that do not know Jesus, that I think that there's something here for you as well. And my heart is, is that God would speak to all of us and that his spirit would challenge us as to what we might do to position our lives more meaningfully to align with his redemptive purpose both locally and globally. It is phenomenal to be able to see what God has done through our movement. We are just one part, a part of what God is doing in the world, but we are a part of it. And since 1914 and the founding of our movement, we have grown from just 300 individuals that identified with one another in order to see the greatest evangelism that the world has ever seen to having a worldwide presence now that numbers into over 265 million and what we see today is, is an extraordinary, extraordinary outpouring of His grace through what continues to be 2,700 missionaries worldwide. And our hope is, is in the next decade to see that grow by another 30-40%. We are now the fifth largest missions agency in the world. And that is uh, very humbling. And much of that is owed to individuals like yourselves who are here this morning and watching by line that we recognize that 
that God has called every individual, every man, every woman, every child to participate in his redemptive purpose. That we are not called to see certain individuals run into this world and bear a mantle to share Christ, but every one of us are called in some way to be able to participate in his mission. As we pray, as we give, as we go, as we share our testimony, as we embody the values of this kingdom, and God has used you, Bethesda, and the question today is, is what is in store next? So I want to speak to you about mission and motive. What is it that should truly motivate you and me to more align our priorities with what he is asking us to do in terms of his heart for the world? How is it that we should think about the decisions that we make? What is it that we do with our resources? How is it that we should determine every day to be able to see our lives more perfectly aligned with his heart for our world? What is it that motivates you? I mean, when you get up each day, what is it that seems to motivate the things that you determine to do each and, give, each and every week? Where is it that you place your priorities? Where are the affections of your heart? What is it that seems to stir your heart and your energies to align your thoughts? And where do those thoughts go? Oftentimes I'm asked, John, what is it that motivates you? And in the 22 years that Cheryl and I have served as missionaries in Africa and now in more of a leadership role with AGWM, we constantly think of what is it that truly continues to motivate what we do. We have lived a period of our life where we have equipped men and women for gospel ministry on the African continent. And oftentimes, many times, those individuals were sent, commissioned into places where their lives were put into jeopardy. And yet, they, along with their families, would serve the Lord faithfully. And, at times, it cost them everything. In the last 24 months, even as the world seemed to shut down because of COVID, many of them continued to serve the Lord on front lines of evangelism, giving their lives. Some of them my own students where they were forced to dig their own grave while their families and congregation were forced to watch and put to death as a weapon of terror to intimidate a newly formed and established community of faith. And yet, with every death, a new, young man or woman would rise to take their place. And when I see their testimony and continue to see their testimonies around the world, I often ask, what is it that motivates them? There is a concept in Latin that theologian, theologians often refer to as the imago Dei. And it means the image of God. And so profound is this concept that you can see it traced in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it emerges with force, most notably, as God calls his people to action in the world. It speaks to the intrinsic worth of every individual. Every man, every woman, every child. And oftentimes it inspires me. 
It speaks to my heart. It is emotive. And yet the trouble that I face with this biblical principle, this theological truth that I know to be so real, so true, that should govern my life, is often challenged when I leave environments like this where we sense God's presence, where we're together, where we're reminded about our purpose in the world as God has called us out of darkness and together he has placed this mantle upon us to be his people in a world that's fallen and terribly needs the hope that's found in him only. And as we engage that world, as we leave moments like this, we end up seeing this world where that image so often reminds us that it has been twisted and deformed to the point in which it is difficult to see the image of God in other people. Deformed and twisted because of our own rebellion, our own sin, and that woundedness oftentimes has been betrayed in front of us day in and day out if we are not careful the emotions of that encounter can be superimposed upon what I know to be theologically true. And if I don't guard my heart, I can be jaded to the very world that God calls me to love, to embrace. Is that right? But out of this truth, there are three motives that I think are absolutely essential for all of us. Because if it is true, I mean really true, man, that every individual is made in his image, then it means that these motives should speak to us every day as we encounter this wounded, fallen world. And the first motive is what I like to call value. Value. You see, if it's true that every individual is truly made in his image, I mean, every man, woman, and child, that it means that we are all the object of God's love and desire to save and to restore that broken image back into what he originally intended for our lives. It means that no matter my nationality or my ethnicity, my culture or the language that I speak, my gender, my age, or what I've done for good in life or bad in life, and whether I even recognize that God exists, and if he does, whether he even acknowledges me, that because I am made in his image and you are made in his image, we are the object of his love and desire to redeem and to transform that image back into what he intended for us redemptively. Value. You see, value then becomes the lens by which God calls me to view the world, to see it as he sees it, even in its woundedness and brokenness, in its fragility. God sees it as still having value because we are made in his image. And therefore, what God loves I am called to love and what God values, the church is called to value. Value. But if value is important as a motive, the second may be more so. And this is what I like to call capacity. You see, if it's really true that every individual is really made in his image and therefore they are the object of his love and desire to save and to restore this broken image back into his intended purpose, then it also means that every individual in this room and those watching by line, for every individual in this world, 
among the nations and languages and tribes who are made in his image have been uniquely designed by God to have the ability, the capacity to authentically say yes to the gospel when they first hear the message of Jesus. It means that no matter my nationality or ethnicity, my culture, the language that I speak, my gender, my age, what I've done for good in life or bad in life, because I'm made in his image, he loves me and he has designed me with the ability to embrace his love and be changed by his grace forever. So therefore, it doesn't matter, you see, whether I speak Tumbuka or Chichewa or Tonga or Ngoni or Kiswahili or whether I speak Afanaromo or Amharic. And it matters not whether I find myself kneeling in a mosque in Tehran or walking between corridors in Cairo and the old city or walking the dusty trails of Dodoma, Tanzania or I find myself living in a cardboard box between the sky rises in downtown Dallas. Or I find myself coming and driving to this beautiful campus right here at Bethesda. Because we are made in his image, he loves us and he has created us with the capacity to embrace his grace and be changed by it forever. I mean, come on, let's just lay our cards on the table for a moment, right? I mean, why would we go through the report that Pastor Josh gave us if we really don't believe in capacity, man? I mean, why turn on the lights? Why adhere to a motive or a practice of supporting missionaries? I mean, why would we take up a special offering to advance the gospel among peoples and places that we have never been or perhaps may never visit? I mean, why lift up our hands? Why come this morning? I mean, why be faithful to the things of God? I mean, after all, if it's a roll of the dice, if it's by chance that perhaps you can come to Christ, but, well, your background is questionable. For you, your pedigree seems to be okay, and we'll check that box. But for you, there are red flags. If it's just by chance then how motivated will you really be to involve yourself in someone else's life? Because if I am not convinced that everyone is a candidate for God's grace, that every single person made in his image can truly be transformed by his love, then there will be self-limitations I impose on my own life as to how much I'm going to involve myself in your life. But if I really believe, I mean, if I truly believe that every single person really, I mean, honestly, is a candidate for his grace, no matter how far removed we believe they may be, then there is then no degree to which we are willing to be able to go to share his love, to give more sacrificially, to pray more meaningfully in order to see that at least every single person in this world made in his image has one opportunity to encounter that grace. You see, capacity drives us beyond what we would normally do to step outside of our comfort zone to ensure that every individual in my neighborhood and community in this nation and the world can authentically be able to exercise what God has already designed them to do, which is to be able to receive his grace 
and be radically transformed by his love. I mean, let me just demonstrate it in the life of one of my own students. In this photo that you'll see with these groups of individuals that are outside of a Bible school in Malawi, Africa. We were asked there many years to go and establish a graduate center. And it went from just training individuals in Malawi, where that school grew from a few candidates to over 800 students, to a school in which over 16 nations across that continent of 54 nations and island states began to attend. And all of a sudden, students from Canada, the United States, and even Asia. And who you cannot see who's on the edge of this photo in order to disguise him, or at least not reveal him, I should say, is a student that came to us from Pakistan. We'll say or call him Saeed. Saeed had come to know the Lord, being raised as a Muslim. His parents came to Christ first, and as he saw Christ transform their life, it opened up his heart, and he surrendered his life to Christ. Being discipled in a local community of faith that was persecuted, he continued to be faithful, and God called him into ministry. And after serving in ministry for some time, he heard of the school in Malawi and decided to leave his wife and two young daughters at the time and come for a three-year study course, and he applied himself. Very intelligent. Spoke several languages. But what most impressed me about him was his humility of heart. His devotion to Jesus. And when he graduated, he was reunited with his wife and two young daughters who had grown. His extended family. And he spent six months with them. Six months. And during that time began to pray as to where God would send him. And he sensed with all of his heart that God was calling him up into the northern area of his country, a place that had been highly resistant to the gospel. There was, there was large expressions of radicalism, even identified by our own government. The tribes there were difficult to penetrate. At that time, we had no knowledge if there were any churches in the territory, in the region. And yet, one day, after that six-month period, he took his wife, he took his young, two young daughters, and went to the train depot in this large city in the south in which they lived and had prayer with their parents and extended family. And they ended up taking that train nearly three hours to the north. And when they came to their destination by foot, they walked several kilometers into this territory. And meeting with tribal elders and chiefs, they had a moment in which they had this appeal to live among them. And being given approval to live among their people, they were marginalized and persecuted, but they, they devoted themselves. They began to love and reach out and show compassion. They learned their dialect. They ended up sharing Christ and just over two years for the first time in which we have knowledge and data, they had won over 200 people for the first time to Jesus Christ. And as they began to win people to Christ, there was this increased sense of persecution. The more people that came to Jesus, the more resistance that they seemed to encounter and yet people continued to come to Christ. And I remember that 
Not long after they had celebrated a moment of getting permission to rent this lean-to of a building that I was in Miami at a convention and spoke and walked off the platform and in the back of this tunnel I came out and this Uber was waiting for me and it was, I was headed to the Miami International Airport in order to return to Africa. And my phone began to buzz and I noticed it was another student of mine from South Africa who is presently somewhere in the Middle East. And he said, Dr. Easter, you should know. And all of a sudden, my face began to change as I realized that the message was, was not a good message. And he said, you should know that this past Sunday that men in the community were so angry with Saeed's ministry that in the middle of a service, they took Saeed and they came in and became violent with the people. With the men sitting on one side and women on the other, which was customary on mats on the floor, these men began to attack those people, including the children. And then took Saeed in front of them just to humiliate him, threw him on his back, drug him out by his legs. And where other men outside were waiting and without explanation threw Saeed in the middle of that mob of people. Where those men began to beat him and hit him in his head and his back and his stomach to the point in which he he fell to the ground and they continued to beat him until he began to bleed and that blood began to mix with the dirt on that, that road and began to cake on his body and they beat him until their anger had dissipated and they finally began to just disband one by one and go back into the village area from which they had come. And in the midst of that chaos and that violence, that congregation, they had just ran for their lives and at least they had the presence of mind to take Saeed's wife and two young daughters and, and take them into hiding in order to protect them. And only two men had the courage that he had discipled and poured himself into to go back to retrieve Saeed's body thinking that he was dead. And when one of them had reached down, felt his chest, he was still breathing. And so they put Saeed on on the shoulder of one of the men and they tried to go undetected several kilometers back to that very train depot that had led them there. And others in the congregation brought Saeed's wife and two young daughters and together those congregational members went three hours down into the southern part of Pakistan where they put Saeed into a hospital and he stayed in that medical ward for over six months recovering from internal wounds. And within one week, one week, when Saeed was released, he took his wife, his two young daughters, and the same people in his extended family prayed for him. And they took that train three hours to the north, got out by foot, and several kilometers walked right back into that region where they are still there to this day. Isn't that amazing? And during that time, friends of mine said to me, Dr. Easter, is Saeed okay? I mean, emotionally, is he okay? Saeed said to me, John, he said, we, we, uh, we considered what to do. He said, but when we began to think that in over two years, over 200 people came to Jesus for the first time in a generations, 
within that region. What if we went back and gave our life? Perhaps the whole village will come to Jesus. Capacity. Capacity. For those of us in here and watching by line, we must recognize that whether it's the person across the street in your neighborhood or the person on the factory floor in which you've tried to witness to for the last 20, 30 years, but they seem to be jaded to your Jesus. Or the children or grandchildren that seem to no longer want to do any, have anything to do with the faith in which has been so dear to you. Or the individual in which you cross on the streets whose name you may not know. The person in your family. The individual in the prison cell. The person of a different tribe and nation. And God has designed all of us with the ability to have the capacity to respond to his grace, which makes us all candidates, no matter who we are or what we've done. We are not too far from his arm of salvation. It is why we do what we do as the church. It is why you give and pray. It is why we go. It's why you decide to adopt 14 new missionaries in a year that seems to shut down the world, but the church rises to say that God's mission continues to advance despite what transpires in a world that seems to come to a stop. But a value and capacity are important. The third may be what it's all about, and I like to call this significance. You see, if it is true, I mean really true, that every person is made in his image and therefore we are valuable to him because we are the objects of his love and desire to save and to transform our brokenness back into his redemptive purpose for our life. And therefore we are uniquely designed by him to have the capacity to respond to his grace and be changed by it forever, then it also means that every individual made in his image is intended by God to have significance not just in the life thereafter, but in this life. Because what is often quoted and so true, God did not just save us from something, he has saved us for something. Hallelujah. Let me demonstrate it through another friend of mine. In these photos, you will see a man whose face is garbed and hid through traditional head gathering or head garb. And beside him is another friend of mine who's the evangelism director of the Ethiopian Assemblies of God. These two men grew up in the same village 40, 40 miles off of the Somali border, one of the most probably volatile regions of the world outside of Ukraine today and Afghanistan. Violent, territorial, tribal. Radical, radical expressions of Islam. And when they grew up, one, one encountered God's grace because someone in his village, 
decided that he had value and capacity and shared his own testimony. And when our evangelism director in the blue shirt heard this, his life was so transformed by that moment of testimony, he surrendered his own life to Jesus and ended up becoming a disciple in a local Assemblies of God church. Called into ministry, he ended up leaving his parents and kindred and went to Addis Ababa into a Bible school that Africa's Hope had established and which this church at Bethesda had given an offering to. Interestingly enough, he ended up after graduating with his baccalaureate planting a church. Then he planted another church, a third church, and decided to plant a fourth church. He did it so well, the leadership put his hands on him and made him the evangelism director. But where the story turns is that the other man in the religious garb was radicalized as a young man. He went to school as well, being called to be an imam. An Islamic leader who ended up taking on his own position of authority. Highly evangelistic, very violent. He ended up being over two mosques among the Oromo Muslims within this large territory in the Horn of Africa. And two and a half years ago, where you see the picture of me praying for them, slightly before that time, our evangelism director decided to go back and visit his, his family, his aging parents actually in the same village in which he had been raised to check on their well-being. And our imam, this very man that you saw, see, heard that he was coming and took other men in the village area and decided that they would wait for him. And when he approached his parents and his extended family, they were going to surround him and they were going to beat him and stone him in order to send a message to the wider community that this is what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. And when our evangelism arrived on that day, that's exactly what transpired. And as he approached his family, who he saw, and his mother and father who began to walk towards him, these men surrounded him, led by this religious imam. And rocks began to be hurled, and insults began to be able to, well, not only captivate the attention of the rest of the village, but as they encircled him, Dust was flying, and by the reports that they gave to me, that it became violent so quickly that our evangelism director was taking on, taking on the most violent encounter he had ever experienced. And in the midst of this, this imam, on the day that you see me praying for him, said, what transpired in that moment is that in the midst of my hatred for this this man who had betrayed what I felt like was our faith. He said, I had this emotional encounter and I turned around and without explaining to the rest of the men that I had gathered to carry out and perpetrate this action, I began to run to the other side of the village. And he said, in the middle of the day, I crawled into my boma and in the heat, he said, I, I was overcome with this sense of of just lying down and going to sleep. And in my sleep, I had a vision. He said, I had a dream. He said, he said but whatever it was, I encountered Isa, the name for Jesus. 
And he said, when I woke up, I was so traumatized that I crawled out on my hands and knees. My face was in the dirt and I was weeping. And he said, then I stood up and I began to panic and realize that perhaps the evangelism director was already departing and running for his life, knowing what we had intended. So I began to run across the, the village again. And when I came, I found this evangelism director, my old young boyfriend. He said, I found him sitting with his parents drinking coffee. And he said, I fell down at his feet and I begged his forgiveness and begged the forgiveness of his family. Then I stood up and looked him in the eyes and said, now teach me more about this Isa." And on that day, our evangelism director led our brother to Jesus Christ. And on the day that you see me praying for him, it's because he had already been discipled for over a year, 18 months actually. And he had just shared with me that he felt called to ministry. He is now an Assemblies of God student in our Bible school in Diridawa, getting ready to be a pastor. And the story's not over. The story's not over because not too long ago, the principal of that school said, oh, he said, Dr. Easter, he said, actually, he hasn't even graduated yet and he's already planted two AG churches. He went after the people in the mosque. Significance. As I close, I'm going to sing a song, and after I do, Pastor Dan will never invite me back here again. <laughs> when I heard about Saeed, and I was in the back of that Uber, I flew back to Lilongwe, Malawi, where 16 students were waiting on me. I was tired, I will admit. But I had five days ahead of me, eight hours a day. I was prepping for the course, and these students came, and they sat ready for us to open the class. And in the very middle of this U-shape class was Gideon Banda. 6'3", 220 pounds, and he stood up and said, Dr. Easter, may I say something? And I said, sure. And he began to speak, and then he stopped, and tears were rolling down his face, and it caught my attention. He took a moment and composed himself. And when he finally came to himself and he could speak, he said, we heard about Saeed. He said, you know, all my life, I've had very little to my name compared to the world's standards, but what I do have, I have because someone in my village had the courage to simply tell their story of how Jesus had changed them. And when I heard the story of that man, he said, it so changed my heart that I knew that I was a candidate for God's love, that I surrendered my heart on that day to Jesus, and I have never been the same. How can I not also give my life in sharing with people who have never had an opportunity to hear, as Saeed has demonstrated to us, send me to the hard place, I will go, he said. And before he could sit down, a young man pulled himself up by his arm and swung around. He pivoted and looked at me and said, no. He said, send me. He said, I'm only here because of a scholarship. 
He said, but me and my wife, we sense that God's purpose on our lives is to ensure that we go to places where there is no witness of God's love today. And before he could sit down, all 16 were standing on their feet and they were not speaking to me or addressing their words to me, but their faces were looking to heaven and their hands were raised and tears were coming down all of their faces, dripping off their chins. All of them in unison saying, oh Lord, if you will send us, we will be faithful. And we begin to sing a song in Chichewa, Mulungu, Angate, 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 Mulungu, Angate, Salepera, Sona, Mulungu, Angate, 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 Mulungu, Angate, Salepera, Sona. God can do anything, anytime, anywhere. God can do anything. He never fails. Hallelujah. And he never fails. And that's why value and capacity and significance become motivators. If Saeed and his wife and two young daughters can get back on a train and go three hours to the north and by foot walk back into that village, what can you do? And if a religious imam who had been raised in violence, not knowing he'd been made in God's image, intended for a different destiny, can be radically changed by God's grace, what can you do? And that is the call. I don't care if you're here this morning, you're a dental hygienist, a school teacher, a primary caretaker of your family, an architect, if you're a business owner. For every one of us, it is not what we do that defines us, it is God's call upon his people as we identify in common that if God can change us, He can change the world. So as I close, if you are here or watching online and you were inspired for a moment but then your memory seems to Raise questions as to your worth, your value. That you're listening right now and you'd say, John, but you have no idea. I mean, you just don't know. And no matter how many disappointments that you think that you've brought upon yourself or others in your life, if you can only imagine for a moment how much God loves you, how he views you, 
the value that he has placed on you because you see before you think you failed we had already failed none of us being worthy or deserving of his grace but he had put a treasure in every single one of us and that was the deposit of his image And that image that seems to be so twisted and deformed that all of the behavioral mistakes of your past have reminded you of, God is here this morning to remind you that because you're made in his image, you're a candidate for his grace. You're the object of his love. And he can restore your brokenness into his redemptive purpose. And because there's capacity in you, all you have to do is decide to exercise that God-given capacity by surrendering that rebellion and reaching out and embracing his grace and allowing his love to transform your heart. And if you do, just be prepared that you will begin to recognize that significance is dawning as he now uses your life, not just to be a receiver of his grace, but a giver of his grace. And for all of us in this room, to say, Lord, may the things that motivate my heart align with your priorities that every person in our world has the ability to know him. And if I can pray more, I should do so. And if I could give more, it should be more than superficial. It should be more than token. And maybe even in this room, there are people who have never even considered God's call to serve in different fields, among different nations. Perhaps, perhaps God is calling you right now and this is the moment for you to yield to that call, not to resist, not to question, but to surrender to his call. But for all of us to be able to say, oh God, you've got our hearts. You've got our attention. And whatever it takes, we want to be a part of reaching this world for Jesus. Thank you, Bethesda, for letting God use you.